0: One of the memories that I have of a young boy in uh, South Chicago suburbs where my dad pastored a little Bible church was 1969 when I was nine years old, my dad bought a brand new car. That was a very big deal for us. He pastored a small church and didn't make a lot of money. He bought a brand new 1969 Chevy Impala station wagon. I really liked that car. I didn't like it quite as well as my next-door neighbor's, oh, about 1958 Chevy station wagon, because on theirs, it had those rubber bumper steps off the back of the bumper, and we could jump up on there, my neighbor buddy and I, and hold on to the top carrier and pretend that we were garbage men um, behind a vehicle. So my dad's Chevy didn't serve us for that, but it had something else that, that was new to us, and that was it had seatbelts. And uh, that was all coming out pretty new there. We never wore them, but we had seatbelts. And I really liked being able to have my seatbelt, big square thing that I would hold up and use as my walkie-talkie and pretend I was Ranger Bill. And uh, that was a lot of fun. It also had an AM radio. Um, uh, our cars didn't always have radios. Um, that's how old I am. And. Uh, so we had this nice AM radio in this brand new Chevy Impala station wagon. And I love to be with my dad. And if you were with my dad, he would listen, especially when it approached the noon hour. Every day that we were out driving, he would listen to Paul Harvey. Do you remember Paul Harvey? I can just remember riding with my dad and the radio on and here comes Paul Harvey. And I remember... Um, on multiple occasions, hearing Paul Harvey tell his now quite well-known Christmas story. I thought I would take a minute, and though I can't do Paul Harvey's voice, nor will I try, um, I thought I would take a minute and read this classic Christmas story that Paul Harvey would read every year around this time of year. It goes like this. It's entitled The Man and the Birds by Paul Harvey. The man to whom I'm going to introduce you was not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealings with other men. But he just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff which churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said that he would feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay at home, but that he would wait up for them. And so he stayed and they went to the Christmas Eve midnight service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier, and then went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, and then another. Sort of a thump or a thud. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against his living room window, but when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm, and in a desperate search for shelter, had tried to fly through his large landscape plate glass window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures lie there and freeze, so he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter if he could direct the birds to it. Quickly, he put on a coat, galoshes, tramped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide and turned on a light, but the birds did not come in. He figured that food would entice them in, so he hurried back to the house, fetched breadcrumbs, sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. So he tried catching them. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms. Instead, they scattered in every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. And then he realized that they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, That I am not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Because any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. And then it occurred to him, if only I could be a bird, he thought to himself and mingle with them, and speak their language. And then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. Paul Harvey would continue, At that moment the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind. And he stood there listening to the bells. And listening to the bells, peeling out the glad tidings of Christmas, and he sank to his knees in the snow. I always enjoyed Paul Harvey's version of that story. And as we, and I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2, it does remind me that as we read the story, that many people uh, might think of this story as more or less a, a fable or just a, a nice story. And you're really not sure what to do with the Incarnation. <laughs> Maybe you don't really believe that God came in the flesh. I trust that even as we reread the story, uh, that the Lord will stir your heart and you'll understand the true meaning of Christmas is that God sent his son to be the savior of the world. We've been focusing this Christmas season on Jesus' names and the names that are above all other names. And what I want us to do as we read the story, and I'm going to take the time to read uh, the first 21 verses of chapter 2 this Christmas morning, that we would read uh, Luke's account of the birth of Christ. I want us to read it and review it. And I want you to be aware of what I consider to be a very unimpressive story. It is very easy to recognize that, or, or not to recognize, that this is King Jesus. It's very easy to just see the story, hear the story, kind of picture it in our mind the way we do from Christmas cards or community scenery, and to miss the point that this is God in the flesh, that this is God's love demonstrated for us in Christmas time. Let's read the Christmas account, Luke's account, Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Um, even as I read in the early service, I thought that this is a story that should be read in the King James Bible. Um, It just doesn't read in the translations the way I have it in my ears from growing up. But I'm reading out of the ESV. You listen and follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee... And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I mean, for example, don't you think you should hear, and they were sore afraid. Amen. Do you know it that well? Uh, in the King James, some of you younger believers don't. And they were sore afraid. I don't know what sore afraid means. It means really, really scared. Um and they were filled with great fear verse 9 and 10 and the angel said to them fear not for behold i bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the lord and this will be a sign to you or for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and cloths and lying in a manger And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I think there's something about peace and goodwill to men on earth there. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb, remember Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves Jesus. It's the name above all names. And it is really a simple story. It's, it's really an ordinary story. And in fact, I consider it uh, unimpressive It is very easy to read the account and to go to the manger in the theater of your mind and to miss the whole point that this is King Jesus. This is a baby king. This is the master of the universe. Let's just remind ourselves of what's happening here. Uh, It is an ordinary story, but it is extraordinary in the unfolding of details. And I, I do want to point out that it was certainly not by chance that this story came about the way that it did. Let's just look at how easy it is to overlook that this was a great king, but let's look at the details. Number one, we have the king's tax. If you're looking at your outlines that are in your bulletin, the first thing we see in the story is that there was a tax. Now, it says in the ESV that there was a registration taking place. It was for the purpose of a tax. It was in the King James account that they went, all the world went to be taxed in their hometowns. It was the idea of registering... um, Israel was under Roman rule at this time. And so they had sent out a decree, Quirinius had, under Caesar Augustus, that all should return to their communities of origin. Remember that Israel consisted of 12 tribes. And so they, were, uh, they tracked themselves through their family name and through their tribe of origin. And so that's why it says that they were of the house and the lineage of David, which would have been the tribe of Judah. And so they were to return to Bethlehem, which was their hometown. It was their origin of their family. There the records would be kept and they would have some sense of, of the population. And then they would also have a sense of how to go from there for taxation and other purposes that the government would want to know who it is under who, over whom they are ruling. So we have the king's tax. Isn't it interesting that a pagan king uh, gets an idea to call for a tax, which is the motivating factor for a young couple who's betrothed to be married. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and they're going to end up, secondly, in their hometown, number two, their hometown, the hometown of Bethlehem. It's verses four and five, and Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because it is, he was of the house and lineage of David. This is him funneling down to his source of origin. And there he was to register. And so people were traveling from all around the, world, all around the area and the country, this geographic region. It is interesting that we know from reading the story that Mary is about ready to have a baby And it is interesting to note that that was about a 70-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. About 70 miles over pretty rugged terrain. But we don't really know how long it took them. We don't really know how she took that trip. We can picture, can't we, her riding on a donkey. And Joseph has the halter or bridle and he's leading. But they make this trip and she's great with child. There they are at their hometown and it. It just seems like the unfolding of everyday occurrences, alright? The government's calling for attacks, we've got to return home. But don't we see God's hand involved in all of this? Nothing is by chance. In fact, that reminds us of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You don't have to turn, it, turn there. But you remember the familiar, familiar prophecy of Micah hundreds of years before, prophesying that it would be out of Bethlehem, though it was a little town. And there we have the hymn, O little town of Bethlehem. Though you are small, Micah said, though you are small, the idea being you are an insignificant dot on the map. And depending on the map, you might not even make the map. He said, O Bethlehem, though you are little or small or insignificant, from you shall come forth one who is to be the ruler in all of Israel. And we know that to be a prophecy about our great Lord Jesus It sure didn't look like it that night, though, did it? A weary couple of travelers, one great with child, heading into Bethlehem. And there they are, totally unimpressive, totally mingled with the crowd. The governor doesn't realize that he's a puppet being controlled by the Lord and his timing. Mary and Joseph, I think, are still not quite... Uh, Sure of all that's happening, although I think that the dots are being connected and they have some understanding of Scripture and their role of what's happening and the profound reality that they are the are the caretakers of Messiah himself. Thirdly, it is the right time. It's the right time. Um, Mary is ready to have a baby. We already emphasized that. And while they were there, verse 6, the time came for her to give birth. Once again, be careful not to think that it just so happened, or once upon a time. That's not how this works. This is the plan of God that is unfolding in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, and you don't have to turn there either, but the idea there is that, Paul said in writing about this great gospel, that at just the right time, at just the right time, Foreordained by God. The idea there was that through the ages of time, as God had communicated in different ways, He had communicated personally to Adam and Eve. He had communicated through the, to Abraham directly. He had communicated through the law of Moses. He communicated through the prophets. He demonstrated the forgiveness of sin through the sacrificial system. And then you have from Malachi to Matthew, 400 silent years and God never spoke. And Paul said, then at just the right time. And you could add to that at just the right place, with just the right people, orchestrated by God himself. There they are. And we know now through the angel's announcement of what's going to happen. And she gave birth, it says in verse 7, and they wrapped him in swaddling claws, placed him in a manger, just wrapped him tightly up with these bindings because there was no place for them in the inn. These are humble people. These are people that don't have that significant of connection. And in the crowd of of the people coming in, there's no place to stay. And then it says she laid him in a manger. And by the way, that's interesting that all of the scenery that we work so hard in all of our Christmas plays and pageants and our demonstrations of nativities. It's all based on that word right there laid him in a manger. It never says he was born in a barn. It doesn't say he was born in a cave. It doesn't say that, he, that there were animals there. It just said she laid him in a manger. That's all it says. Out of that, we have our wonderful crate and metal roofed little barn out here. And by the way, you don't know if to write me notes on the yellow cards and put them in the offering plate that the wise men were not at the... At the um, I know that. I know that. Okay, there's two reasons why we do that. There's two reasons. Number one, because decorating lady does it. And I don't mess with decorating lady. OK, that's number one. All right. Number two, it, it's it's um, you know, it's a literary freedom. It, it is it's poetic, um, poetic uh, manipulation to take the story and compress all of the characters. There's probably some word for that. I don't know, but it's like, it's like bringing all the characters in the story and bringing them to one point in time. Even though we know that chronologically that's not how it happened. So please don't let that ruin your Christmas. All right. And don't comment it around decorating lady. All right. It's all good. you are here just at the right time. And, and she laid him in a manger. All right. Which is a feeding trough. So, based on the fact that it says a feeding trough, we have these barns and we have cattle lowing. How's the song go? Cattle lowing. Hmm? Baby awakes from the animals, yeah, right? And it's, it just gives us warm and fuzzies. And somewhere in there, a little boy's playing a drum, right? Um, and he plays his drum for him. ta ta ta. And it's all good, right? It's just great. Well,. All that comes about in the barn where Jesus was born from the phrase, laid him in a manger. She laid him in a manger. Um, My mom laid my little brother in a dresser drawer. You ever do that? See, we didn't have room in in our house for a crib, in our little house. So she opened her bottom dresser drawer and there she laid, made a bed for my little brother. You just do that, right? You just do that. Poor people do that. A manger. Humble people but we know from the angel's song, I call it the angel's song, uh, that there wasn't the same sh- region. There's these shepherds, they're key players, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I guess so. In the middle of the night, totally disrupted. There were a lot of sheep in this area. By the way, sheep were so common for the sacrificial system, for one thing, and it, commerce and agriculture here was so, uh, so centered on on this animal that it was so common that some people have tried to determine the time of the year when shepherds would have been out in the field to determine the timing of the birth of our Lord. You can't do that. They were always out in the field with their sheep in this area. All right. And we know, okay, don't write this on a yellow card either. I know that December 25th is very unlikely that this was the exact day when our Lord was born. There was a day when he was born. I have no idea what day it is, and the Bible doesn't tell us. But we're celebrating that we are remembered by a loving Heavenly Father to be given a gift that does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So here we are, and the angel makes this announcement. The angel said to them, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. Now notice, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with the angel, this is why I call it the Angel's song number four, uh, a multitude of heavenly hosts. All of a sudden there was more angels than you could count. It was a host, a heavenly host. So it was gabillions of angels, I guess. And evidently God has angels like that at his disposal and they filled the sky, I take it with a bright light, with an incredible sound. I don't know what that sound was like. I take it that the shepherds are down on their faces and this announcement is made to them. And number five, we can experience the shepherd's joy when the When the announcement is made, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 15. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go see what's going on. This thing that the Lord has made known to us. I think they were so pleased and so humbled. You know, I think that the the shepherds are the living visual of the reality that the message is for all people everywhere. Because shepherds are the low strata of society. They're like, and you know, isn't it the testimony of Scripture, both in the Bible characters that we see and in even teaching principles like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise, to bring down the mighty, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God specializes in the ordinary, doesn't he? And he takes the ordinary and he makes it extraordinary. And these shepherds get the announcement and off they go, spreading the joy. And we notice their ordinariness. But I want us to go back to verse 11. And and this is kind of the, the punch of the message today. It's easy to sit in your chair and let your family go off to church and I don't know about this incarnation stuff. I don't know. You know, it's because we don't really recognize who's in the manger. And the ordinariness of this story belies the reality of the extraordinariness of this baby king. We're at verse 11, and I want you to see the baby's name. Number six, the baby's name. This is no mistake as well. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior... For he shall save his people from their sin. He's a Savior who is Christ. That's a title for Messiah. He's the Messiah and he is the Lord. The name that the angels announced to the shepherd is that he is Christ the Lord. If you just read the story and if you just hear it in English the way we read it, you really miss the fact that this is... This is one of the most incredible kings. It is the most incredible king who is born in this manger. You see, let's just go up in the text box for a minute and let's remind ourselves of the definition of some of the common names for deity or for God in our Bibles. And remember that God has many, many names. He's really three in one. He's Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a three in one God. That's a mystery and a marvel. He is three distinct personalities, one God, but many, many names. And the names spring from the inability that we have to ensconce him or to describe him with with just certain names. And so really he probably has infinite names. And, and in the Bible, there are many, many names for God, and it springs out of his character. It's a description of who he is. And when we understand his name, we understand better who he is. And when we understand better who he is, we don't overlook the manger. We don't stay home and read the paper. We recognize that God put on flesh. It's an incredible story. Um, We're up in the text box on our notes, if not, just listen. So in in our Bibles, for example, let's just remind ourselves of the three most commonly phrased names or translated names for God in our Bible. The first one is God, which is a capital G with a lowercase o-d. Okay, you see that in your Bible, God, lowercase o-d. And that's the name Elohim, Elohim. And it means the strong and faithful one. So where we use the name God over and over again, and it all sounds kind of the same to us, in the mind of, a, of, a, of an Israelite or the Hebrew mind, especially in the Old Testament, which the story of the birth of Christ is still Old Testament, it's pre-cross. But in the Jewish mind, they would hear the word Elohim, and they would know that we're talking about our strong and faithful God. Another common translation, a name that is used for God, is Lord, all in capital letters, L-O-R-D, all in capital letters, or God, all in capital letters. And this most often um, means that it's translating the name that was never said out loud in Israel of old. And it would be Yahweh, or we say it Jehovah, all right, And it's a, it's a compression of his name, um, leaving out the vowel sounds, or using just the vowel sounds, Yahweh. Okay. The idea, was, the idea was that it is an unspeakable name because it is so holy, we would not say it. I am so awed by God, and I am so awed by his name, that I wouldn't even speak it. And so they made up this word, Yahweh. They wouldn't speak it, they wouldn't write it. If they had to write it, if the scribes had to write it, they would go wash their hands, change their clothes. It is the most sacred name representing God in all of His holiness. And in God in all of His holiness always reminds us of all of our sinfulness. So when they see the name Yahweh or or Jehovah, He is the most holy God and we are a most sinful people in His presence. And I can't even say, by the way, Can I just put a parenthesis here and encourage you to be really careful to watch your potty mouth? That we would throw around Jesus Christ or God's name in other versions. Boy, that's a pretty serious thing. (laughs) Ecclesiastes said, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. And one thing that the Israelite of old wouldn't do is wouldn't even speak his name out loud, not to speak of saying it in an oath or in a curse or in a derogatory manner. Let me encourage you to remove any version of the name of God in an inappropriate way out of your vocabulary completely. Out of awe for this holy Yahweh, Jehovah God. Well, the Lord that we're looking at is the point of our message today. It is Lord with a capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And it's the name for God that is Adonai. Adonai. It means master, owner, ruler, sovereign ruler. And the New Testament equivalent of Adonai from the Old Testament is translated in the New Testament, kurios. Okay, so the Old Testament class is written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written originally in Greek. Okay? And so in the Greek language, they use the word for Adonai, kurios. It means Lord, ruler, sovereign ruler, the one who is over all, the one to whom I am accountable, the one to whom I submit. That's Adonai. The word in the Old Testament, Adonai. The word in the New Testament, Kyrios, translated Lord. Let's do take just a minute and let's illustrate it in the life of Peter in Matthew chapter 14. And this is one way that Kyrios is used. And this is used dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. The name of God, Adonai, translated from the word kurios in Greek to the English word Lord, capital L, little O-R-D, he who rules over me, he who is the king, he who is sovereign over everything about me. And we can just jump right into the middle of this familiar story. This is when Jesus encounters the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night, and they're, sore, they're really afraid. And uh, there's a storm going on, and the disciples are frightened. And Peter looks over, look at verse, they say it's a ghost in verse 26. But immediately Jesus spoke, verse 27, saying to them, Take heart and desire, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Adonai. Kurios, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come, Peter. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out and he said, Adonai, Kurios, Lord, save me. Master, ruler. And indeed he was this one who could walk on water or speak to the wind, speak to the waves and they would obey him. That is Adonai. The one who is ruler over all. What I wanted to do for the heart of the message here, and it might be almost a redundancy, because I think you have the point, is to recognize that this Lord, Kyrios Adonai, is no ordinary baby. He is the master, he is the ruler, he is the commander who is born. You see, it changes everything about the way we approach the manger. It's not just an ordinary story. It is a story that was unfolded at exactly the right time, with exactly the right players, with exactly the right meaning, with exactly the right names, with exactly the right message that the world would know that the King was born. I like to illustrate this out of the Old Testament. Let's do it quickly. There are simple stories. The first one... And this is illustrating now the name Adonai from the Old Testament so that we are recognizing the impact of the word Kyrios or Lord. It is Christ, the Lord, Adonai, Kyrios, the Lord who is born. Don't miss this. The first of the Old Testament illustrations, and there are many, is in Exodus chapter 4. And in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord is illustrating to Moses his power so that he will go lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in a way, there's a little bit of an argument going on here. Moses is trying to tell the Lord, I can't do this. You ever tell the Lord that? You ever tell the Lord, I just can't, I can't do this. But the Lord Adonai, ruler, master, already said, go do it. He already told Moses at the burning bush, this is my walking orders for you. So in chapter four, they go through this drill of Moses throwing down his staff. It becomes a snake, putting his hand in his jacket. He becomes leprous, puts it back. It becomes healed, picks up the snake. It becomes a staff again. And he says, Those are the signs that you need to know that I am am Yahweh, I'm God over all, and I'm telling you to do this. And there's a breaking point in this argument that's going on. I want you to see it. Um, Because Moses is saying in verse 8, God is saying to Moses, if they do not believe you, because, see, back up in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answers God and says, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. God, they're not going to believe me. They don't believe what I say. And they don't believe that you talk to me. And then the argument begins and the stick becomes a snake and the hand becomes leprous and then healed again. And then verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord. L, capital L, little O-R-D. O my Adonai. My master. My ruler. My sovereign one. My king, I am not eloquent neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, Adonai, Master, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord burned. That's enough of the story for there. Because the point is what? If Moses recognizes that he is his Lord, his Adonai, his master, his ruler, he needs to be quiet. And in fact, God wins the argument and Moses does indeed do what he says. And he provides him then later, right away in the story, that's where he tells him, all right, I'm going to give you Aaron so you're without excuses. And then Aaron ends up being, of course, most of the time, more of a pain than a help. You see, Adonai is the master whom we obey. That's why God's anger burned. I'm your Adonai. I'm your master. You are the servant. You don't talk back to me. I told you to go do this. The master has a right to demand absolute obedience. Absolute obedience. He's my Adonai master, Curios Lord. Obey him; he demands obedience, absolute obedience. He's also a great king before whom we bow. He's a great king before whom we bow, and and this is the story in Isaiah chapter six. And you can turn there if you want. But there he says, "This is the year that King Uzziah um, died." And he said, "I saw the Lord high and lifted up." That was that's Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. um, The idea there, and 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 then he, he goes on. Let's. I need to turn there. Um, I was going to try to speed, it, speed through it, but I, I better just read it and it'll go faster and smooth, more smoothly. He said in verse Isaiah chapter 6, uh, The king Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on, upon a throne high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Above him, seraphim, the wings, the covering of the face, the covering of the feet. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's another name for God there. That's, that's Yahweh Sabaoth. Lord of hosts, the whole earth is, fill, is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice. He's a mighty God here. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's response is to cover up, man. Dive underneath the couch. Woe is me. Because you when you're in the presence of a holy God, what do you see in yourself? Your unworthiness, right? You recognize how dirty you are. And he says that he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the people of an unclean lips. My eyes, though I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, Lord Jehovah Sabaoth, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand, a burning coal that he had taken from Thompson, the altar, he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned. He's forgiven. He's clean in the presence of a holy God. And then God speaks again. And He says, I heard the voice of, here it is, of the Lord, capital L, little O-R-D, Adonai, my master, my ruler, speaks. And He says, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? I have a work to be done. I have a message. I need a messenger. And then He said, Here am I, send me. I will go. Why? Because He recognized this was His Adonai, his Lord, his ruler, his master, and he bowed down before him as though he were a great king. The king has a right to call me into service anytime he needs me. Who shall I send? Who will go for me? Adonai is speaking. In the New Testament, we come to the manger, it's curious, Lord. And indeed, he grows up and he calls people unto himself, right? And he has a task and he has a job. And he, he looks at Peter, James, and John and he says, Come follow me, Curios, Adonai, Lord, the master speaks, the ruler speaks. Come follow me. And immediately they drop their nets and follow him. It's the attitude we have that we approach this wonderful Lord Jesus. Finally, Joshua chapter 5 and we'll, I'll just take the time to read this as well. It's only three verses. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua is, is in, a, in a position of indecisiveness and insecurity. He has Jericho with its great wall standing before him. He doesn't know what to do. He's got foot soldiers with bows and arrows and spears and daggers and swords. He has no ram, ram, uh, ramrods. He has no catapults. He has no ability to knock down big walls. He's just got little hand tools. And here's Jericho. And God has told him to go take over Jericho. And he's, he's frightened and he doesn't know what to do. And this is what he's thinking about. And when Joshua, verse 13, chapter 5, was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and behold... And looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Or are you our adversary? Are you against us? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord of Jehovah. I am the commander of the Lord's army. By putting this together with other scripture passages, we know that this is a what we call a Christophany. This is a a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's appearing with a sword in his hand. And he's letting Joshua know that I will be your captain. And you can have confidence, I will lead the way. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, that's Jehovah there, now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshipped, and he said to him, what does my Lord, there it is, it's the word Adon, the word in human relationships of a Lord and a Master, because the word that we get Adonai, that Adon, is the idea of a Master over serfs, over servants. The idea here is that this is my Lord. He is you are the one who rules over me, even though it's a lowercase L even here. What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What you have here is just another illustration of Adonai, my commander, my ruler, my king. It's my commander to whom we submit, the commander to whom we submit, and whatever my commander orders, that I will do. Obedience again. What did Jesus say in John 14? He that hath my commands and keepeth them, he is that loves me. You want to demonstrate your love for Christ, you obey Him. You want to demonstrate your understanding that you know that this is Kyrios, this is Adonai, this is Lord, you obey Him. And this takes us right back to where we began our series four weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2. And there the Apostle Paul reminds us that this model of this humble picture of the baby in a manger with Mary and Joseph in the city of David in Bethlehem, in evidently a stable, you know, some kind of a barnyard setting or a very, very backyard shed type setting, that this is an example of humility that is to be a model for us in all of our relationships. And in Philippians chapter 2, he says, You have the same love and be of one mind and do nothing out of, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but only in humility. Always count others more significant than yourselves. Do not look only at your own interests, but on the interests of others. In fact, he says, verse 5 now, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to or grasped or not given up. But he emptied himself. He laid it aside by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, laid in a manger, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's why he came. To be born to carry our sin, so that we could look to the cross and live, and we could lay down our sin, and we could take his righteousness, and we could have everlasting life, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sin, the one who is the, the Gabor, the warrior, the one who is. Adonai, the ruler, the master, this name above every name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, and there it is, Lord, capital L, little O-R-D, that Jesus Christ is my kurios, my Adonai, my master, my king, my ruler, to the glory of God the Father. Can I ask you a question? This Christmas morning is the baby in the manger, your king. See, your ruler, your Adonai, your Kurios, your Lord, your Savior. Oh, it's such an ordinary story. You can look at a baby and forget that this is the master of the universe. This is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the one before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Why not do it voluntarily today instead of being forced in the end day when everybody, those who even shake their fist and worse at God, their knee will bow and their tongue will confess when the warrior king arrives on his horse at his second coming at his first coming, a baby in a manger. His second coming, mighty King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah, <coughs> hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in closing prayer. Heavenly Father, help us not to miss the point of Christmas. Help us to recognize what you did for us, like the man in our introduction in Paul Harvey's story needed to become a bird to get the birds to go where they belong you came to earth humbled yourself took on the form of a servant became obedient even unto death father as we come to the manger this Christmas morning we recognize that you are Jesus you'll save your people from your sin you are Christ you are the Messiah and you are Lord you are Adonai you are our master We would bow humbly in your presence and worship you. And then that we would go from here and obey you. And we would surrender our will to your will. We would bow down to you. And whatever it is you ask of us, we would do without hesitation. Because you are our Adonai, Kurios, Lord and Master. It's in his name that we have met and that we pray. And now that we go, in Jesus' name.